I'm very pleased today to be joined by Catherine Weber in the Reading Corner. We're going to be discussing her new YA novel, The Revelry. And I have to admit to Catherine that reading this kind of folky horror set in America in the woods is a guilty pleasure of mine and is something that I would definitely have been reading as a teenager. The difference is that as when I was a teenager, there wasn't this literature for young adults. And so I would have had to have gone to the adult equivalent. Uh, and therefore, the characters were never about my age. They were always about older people. So you can tell that I'm getting excited. And I'm very pleased to be welcoming Catherine back into the reading corner. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. And I'm delighted to hear that this is the kind of thing that you enjoy uh, reading. So thank you so much. It's called The Revelry. And uh, as you know, as somebody who's worked in the children's book world and publishing world for a long time, we get lots of books that are sent to us. And some speak to us instantly. And I was captivated just by the title of this. I knew that I had to know more. It's such a great word, the revelry. So tell us how it came to be called that and why you settled on that. Oh, that's well, I have to say all credit for the title goes to one of my editors. I'm Annalie Granger, one of my editors at um, Walker Books. So we, I am with my YA, YA titles, uh, terrible uh, titles usually. Um, and so the revelry is the name of a party that happens in the woods um, that kind of kicks everything off in the book. And in my very first draft of this book, um, the revelry actually wasn't even there. There was a party, but it wasn't quite as mysterious and magical as the one in the final draft um, that readers can now read. And then kind of through various iterations and rewrites, the revelry itself um, became much, much more prominent. And um, Annalise said, I think that should be the title. And initially I was like, oh, but is it, you know, is it too vague? Will readers, you know, be interested? But I, you know, I'm so happy that we've gone with that just because, you know, like you were saying, I think it does immediately capture people's attention and they want to know more you know, well, what is the revelry? And we've had a lot of fun kind of playing with, I love the idea of inviting readers themselves to the revelry saying, come, you know, by reading the book, you were invited, you know, tonight is the revelry, you should come and join. So it's kind of interesting how it came to be the title. It suggests danger as well, doesn't it? Yeah. it, it it's a little bit like rule breaking. Once yeah. something becomes a revelry, you've taken it that step further. Exactly. And it, yeah, it feels a bit dangerous. It feel, you know, it's got kind of a, a, a hint of danger and excitement in it, um, which I enjoy. So, and I have to give a shout out um, to the designer and cover illustrator who have fully captured kind of the, the vibe of the book and the word revelry, I think as well. You know, it's, it's all come together. With publishing, you know, you always want the, the title and the cover and the story itself to all work together. And I think I got very, very lucky in this and it all... Um, came together exactly as I could have hoped for. We should really get to know a little bit more about the story. So maybe you could start with reading the opening chapter. I would love to. And actually, um, right before chapter one, there's a little like, I always forget what this is called, the epigraph, the like little quote at the beginning. And so it goes, seven trees for seven wishes, seven hearts for seven kisses, seven deaths for seven dreams, seven stitches in seven seams. Try to jump from six to eight. Because seven is where you'll meet your fate from the fate of seven. Chapter one. I am a girl from Ember Grove and these are my woods. I grew up with the dark woods as my playground. Hide and seek among the trees. Play pretend on the lake shore. 
I know every root and bramble, thorn and stone. But there are parts of the woods I would never go to alone. Tonight is different. Tonight is the revelry. Tonight, the woods are ours for the taking. The revelry is more than a party. The revelry can change your entire future. Ember Grove is a town fueled by rumors and superstition, local myths and half-forgotten fables, and the revelry is the most important of them all. A night to change your destiny, to find out if Ember Grove will let you go or keep hold of you forever. Not me. I, Bitsy Clark, am going to get out of Ember Grove, like my brother Harvey did. He's at Cobalt University down the coast. We don't hear from him much. When people leave, they don't tend to come back, even to visit. But I think he's happier down at Cobalt. Who wouldn't be happier away from our small town, where secrets and success battle for space, where the woods listen to every whisper, where one party can change everything? The events of each revelry are closely guarded secret, kept between that year's attendees. Nobody talks about their revelry. There are no photos, no official guest list, no proof of anything that happens. Of course, whispers slither out, rumors spread, and stories from revelries gone by turn to local legend. Like one year, supposedly, flowers bloomed between kissing couples all night long. And then everyone started to believe that when you have your first kiss, and if it's with someone who likes you back, something green will grow. My best friend Amy agonized over this one because she lives in an apartment with no green space at all. But then, and I'm telling the truth, the week after she kissed Mark Lee during Spin the Bottle, a little dandelion sprout appeared on her windowsill, a revelry rule that had spilled into town and lasted longer than one night. It happens all the time. The revelry is meant to be just for graduating high school class, no exceptions. It happens every year, almost by magic, all the adults turning the other way, as if it's not for them to worry about. Everyone in town knows when it is, and even though there are whispers of what could happen, what has happened in years past, what will happen, nobody tries to stop it. Trying to stop the revelry would be just like trying to stop the seasons from changing. It is just as much a part of Ember Grove as the woods themselves. It isn't my year. I'm 16 and shouldn't be going for another two summers. And apparently Amy has other plans. Mm. It's the tone quite nicely. I think I haven't reread the beginning in a while. I was like, oh, this does set, uh, give the reader a good idea of what's to come. It really does. And who wouldn't want to read it after that brilliant introduction? So we're introduced immediately to these two characters, these two friends, uh, Bitsy and Amy. One who is a a native of uh, Ember Grove. She's her her family stretch back uh, generations and she thinks of them as being her woods. And Amy, who's a bit of an outsider. Yeah, exactly. For me, the heart of the story is their friendship. Um, While the revelry itself, you know, plays a very big part and, you know, is hopefully one of the things that entices readers to read. When I went, you know, my initial idea was about writing about a you know, very close, you know, sometimes complicated uh, female friendship and kind of Bitsy and Amy came from there. Um, my aunt is actually called Aunt, or when she, we used to call her Aunt Bitsy. She's Elizabeth and then Bitsy is short. And the name kind of always really stuck in my head. And both the characters came really fully, fully formed. And I love the idea of there being this mysterious kind of glamorous, otherworldly, secretive party that I would have loved to have gone to as a teenager, but also been a little bit frightened of. And I I like the idea of it being, you know, so seeped in the town's 
mythology and the idea of Bitsy, kind of her whole whole generations of her family having lived there, they have all also gone to the revelry and kind of being like your turn and kind of passing down the torch of this mysterious thing and kind of a, you know, marking a, a change in your life. I don't know. I was really intrigued by kind of bringing all of those things together. Mm-hmm. And of course, Amy's not afraid to break the rules. Exactly. And I think part of that is because she, as you're saying, she is a little bit of an outsider. Um, Amy, Bitsy's best friend, moved to Ember Grove when she was eight. And the girls have been very close. And, you know, you could argue that living somewhere since you were eight makes you part of that town. But Bitsy feels like Amy's not really an Ember Grove girl. She doesn't really know the consequences of breaking, you know, Ember Grove's rules. Um, But her kind of affection and love for her best friend means that she's going to go along with her. And also she doesn't want to miss out. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the sort of Americanness of the story and how it would have been different if it was set in the UK. My feeling is that if it if it was British, it would be like an older folkloric Celtic. We'd be going back that far. Yeah. Whereas this further. it feels as though it's just round the corner and that this mythology is building in the here and now. Oh, I love that. I love thinking of that. You know, it's funny. I've um, tell by my accent, I'm American. I've lived in uh, London now for eight years, but I don't know if I am confident enough to write a book set in the UK and, you know, featuring British characters. And yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point because America obviously does have a shorter kind of history for these things. Um, I think for me, what feels most American about the revelry is the small town. Uh, so so the revelry is set in, in Ember Grove and it's this small town that is kind of surrounded by woods. And I envision it, it's a fictional town. I envision it kind of in the Pacific Northwest. So kind of far up in Northern California where the sea is not too, too far away, but um, kind of, uh, I wanted the town itself to feel quite claustrophobic, kind of almost surrounded by the woods. And um, as I said in the, the, the reading, kind of when you leave, maybe you don't come back. Um, so yeah, I think the kind of key things that would have been different is that maybe the small town feel wouldn't have felt as prevalent to me. It feels like quite like an American-y type thing. And then also there are kind of uh, moments in the book that are very much unique to American high school experiences. Like we talk about a homecoming dance and also, you know, playing varsity sports. And I found in my YA, it's, I don't know if it's just because I, when I'm thinking about teenage stuff, I immediately go back to being a teenager. All my books either start the summer going into the new school year always. Like, it's like, all right, well, that's when you start because that is the new school year. Um, so yeah, and that definitely feels tied to kind of the, the American high school system. There's lots of interesting pairings in this. I want to talk first of all about the woods. And these seem to be woods and forests are perhaps the deepest symbol of our imagination in any culture. And the pairing of that with the orchard, which is a sort of cultivated woodland. I thought there were lots of interesting pairings in the story. I actually uh, dedicated the book to two of my best friends who I have a very easy friendship with, nothing quite like the complicated one between Bitsy and Amy. But um, I said, uh, the dedication that says, for Faye and Janu, my oldest friends, thank you for a childhood spent wandering in the woods of our imagination. So I love that, that you have kind of picked up on that. I grew up in a very suburban town without any actual woods. We used to go out and pretend we were deep in the woods and in the forest. And I think there is something about, you know, folklore and um, fairy tales that makes, you know, the woods so enticing. And I've always been drawn to woodlands. Um, something actually I love about, about London is, you know, for such a big city, there are so many amazing wooded spaces, you know, you've the heath and, you know, lots of different kinds of woods. And I think it is just ripe for storytelling. And then in terms of comparing that to the orchard, I like, so in um, 
Bitsy's family has an apple orchard that they've uh, had since her grandparents' generation. And I love the idea. So it's Bitsy's house and then the orchard and then the woods. And I loved it as kind of this almost idea of like, like you say, kind of going from the more manicured, controlled into the wild. Um, you know, there's still trees. So visually, I like the idea of imagining her again, going from her from the street to her house, to the orchard, to the woods. And we're kind of getting more and more into the kind of magical as she as she goes. I'm using the word magical a lot. The book is very much grounded in reality, I should I should clarify. Um I've also just really loved orchards. And again, thinking of like seasonally, there's something for me about the fall and apple orchards that I find really appealing and I'm really drawn to. It just seems like a really great way to kind of set the the scene and the the and the season as well. Mm. And this may not be a conscious thing, but I think even subconsciously the idea of apples and everything that they bring in terms of, you know, the apple being the source of knowledge and the whole Adam and Eve thing that yes. through eating the apple, you. That's so interesting. I had never really thought about that. I think you're right. I think that must have been kind of more of a subconscious thing. And there is something I think that's so evocative about apples from, like you said, going back to, you know, the the fruit of knowledge uh, or the from the tree of knowledge eating the fruit and then also you know fairy tales you know think of snow white you know having a bite of apple and then in some ways apples can be quite wholesome i don't know i just think there's a lot to um to play with the kind of a motif now uh, it is as you say it's principally a story about if we were to pick out the themes it would be about friendship and what friendship is and partly bitsy has to learn that her idea that's set in her mind of what friendship is may not be what it means to others and she's got to develop as she grows up I suppose a more nuanced understanding of what it means to be a good friend and I love that grandma Shirley she's the source of all wisdom she more or less says to her Amy might not see friendship in the same way that you do yeah. And, you know, that's something that I really purposely put into the books. That's something as, you know, even as an adult, you'll know, be 35 this summer, but, you know, realizing that people, you know, quote, good friend differently. And that's, you know, coming to that realization has really helped me with a lot of my relationships and friendships. Um, you know, some people talk a lot about love languages, like, oh, is your love language um, gifting or is it words of affirmation? There's a whole quiz you can take. And I think usually that's around romantic love. But I think that friendship has its own language, too. You know, so I've tried to take note. I have some friends who are incredible gift givers, you know, every time I see them, they're showing up with, you know, some baked goods or something that they picked up for me. And so I tried to reciprocate in a similar way, like, oh, if I'm seeing that friend, maybe I should bring something. because obviously that's how they show their affection. Or, you know, some friendships are, you know, you can be on the phone for hours or some people like just to have like a really meaningful time spent together or, or texting and just kind of, I've tried to pay attention how, how people perceive being good friends. And I also think that it, it, you can sometimes get your feelings hurt if you think that someone isn't good friending in the way that you would. It was something that I wanted to explore in the book because I think that it's something that if you can kind of figure that out earlier, it'll make your relationships mu- you know, just much easier. It really has helped me not take offense to things where there was none meant. And so that's been a, like I said, I kind of came to that realization a bit later, but I, I think uh, especially when you're a teenager and you kind of have really high, expe- and your friendships are so important to you, um, you have really high expectations for your friends. I think sometimes you can hold your friends to unfair standards. Mm, really interesting. Without giving too much of the plot away, because this is a story where there is a mystery at its heart. And if we talk about that too much, that pleasure that I had in it all being revealed will be destroyed for others. And I really don't want to do that. But I do want to mention that there's another character in this story who for a time appears to be 
Bitsy's friend. And this is another interesting pairing. She's called Skylar. Yeah. And that kind of offsets something in the relationship with Amy as well. Yeah, I'm really interested in um, intense, intense female friendships and how you can really, especially if someone comes into your life who's a little bit older and you kind of develop a kind of a, a friend obsession and infatuation with them. I remember, you know, when I was in high school, always thinking the older girls were just so cool and wanting to be them. And I almost like, not not in a romantic obsession way, but just in a oh, I want to be them and I want them to think I'm cool. And then it kind of carried on even into um, when I was in university. Uh, I was in a sorority in in university and they have this thing called Big Sis, Little Sis in American sororities where you're kind of adopted by an older girl and like, you don't know who it's going to be. And like, I remember being like, oh, I really hope it's, you know, this person or that person. And um, I, I so Skylar in the story, she's um, she's older than, than Bitsy and Amy and she's kind of, you know, super cool and, uh, and you know, has knowledge and experience that the girls don't. And um she, she can be quite disdainful of the things that Bitsy worries about with Amy and it kind of, it, it, it unbalances their friendship a little bit. And so I wanted to explore that. I wanted to explore, you know, that kind of intense, non-romantic, but kind of obsession you can get for, for, you know, a cooler, older girl that at least I definitely had, as well as how introducing a new friend can kind of change the dynamic of an existing friendship. Um, it was something that I, I found really interesting. And actually in an earlier draft, Skylar had, been a boy and Bitsy had been kind of romantically interested in them. And then when one of my other editors, Non, said, I think it's more interesting if it's a girl and we're exploring that, you know, friendship infatuation um, that that you can have. Um, and of course, you know, if Bitsy had been a different character, she could have been romantically interested in Skylar, but I wanted to explore that I, I think would have been a different story to tell. And I wanted to kind of strip it back just to really intense friendship as that uh, that you can have when you're a teenager and and throughout your life, but especially I think when you're a teenager. Right at the beginning of the story, when Amy and Bitsy are making the decision, or at least Amy's making the decision and Bitsy's following, <laughs> to go and break the rules and join a revelry that should not be their revelry. We're probably reading it and thinking, don't go, don't go, don't do it. <laughs> but actually, it's sort of a good thing. You have to break the rules. And one thing that uh, came a little bit later on was Bitsy pretending to be good still, a good girl to her parents. And I thought that resonated. It probably resonates with all of us that there's a period that we kind of play the good child still. And yet probably none of us are being that child. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I love about writing about teenagers and for teenagers is I think there's this friction about who you are, who you want to be and how you're perceived. And Bitsy is kind of, you know, butting heads against that because she feels like she always has been. I think there's a line somewhere in there. I mean, I wrote it. I remember, I think she says that'll be on my tombstone, Bitsy Clark, a good girl. And that's what she feels like she's always been for her family, you know, for her friends. And she wants to be something more and something more interesting. And again, kind of going back to Skylar. So when Skylar comes into her life and is kind of like, oh, well, you know, let me show you, you know, show you some more uh, kind of dangerous things and more worldly things. She's really drawn to that. And I think sometimes also in a friendship dynamic, you know, you have someone who's kind of being the more rational one and then the one who's kind of the more uh, wanting to break the rules and Bitsy definitely feels like that with her and Amy and I think that you know it's interesting thinking about how she has to kind of pretend to be for her parents because I do think that is how probably almost all teenagers are to one degree or another um, you know so yeah that's a uh, that's definitely something that I wanted to explore in the book. It's also a little bit about coming into your own power and realizing that 
Um, there's a there's a curse in this story, but that curse in a way is of your own making, and that you have the power within yourself to break free of these things. Yeah, I am a really big believer in the power of narrative and the power of stories we tell ourselves. Again, going back to that idea of how you're perceived and you know who you want to be, I think that how you view yourself and then how you present yourself to the world is going to be mirrored back to you a little bit. And that again is something I wanted to explore. Um, you know, the power of belief. You know, if you believe you are cursed, you probably really will start to feel quite cursed. Um, and you know, that that's something that the revelry kind of toys with about the power of belief and what's real and what isn't and uh, how much power you have in yourself to kind of to change your your destiny. Before we started recording, you mentioned that this book had taken a long time to write. (laughs) And also that it is much shorter than a lot of the young adult books that drop on the desk. Tell us a little bit about that. Why did it take so long? Well, I want, I wanted it to be the book itself to feel quite tight and taut and, you know, be, be a, a slimmer book because I wanted the reader just to feel really wrapped up in it and be able to zoom through it and not saying that, you know, physically longer books, you know, don't have that kind of feeling, but it was a bit of a purposeful thing. Um, but yeah, so the book is about 51,000 words, which is, um, on definitely on the shorter side of a YA novel, although it is the length of Great Gatsby. Um, it's interesting. I think in adult novels, just a slight tangent, no one really focuses as much on word length or how long it is. Um, but I do think in children's fiction, there tend to be kind of these more slightly prescribed ideal lengths. Um, anyway, it's something interesting. Uh, but so this book did take me five years to write. I had the initial idea about, like I said, female friendship and wanting to explore how powerful and beautiful and complicated and kind of tangled that could be. And so I always knew that Bitsy and Amy were going to be linked in some way. Uh, my very first work, you know, we were talking about the title at the beginning. My very first working title was The Silver Thread because I had it kind of, oh, they have this thread that's linking them. Not nearly as good of a title as The Revelry. And then it was trying to figure out, well, what, how are they linked? Why are they linked? What is happening? So the very first draft I actually wrote was in third person, um, which didn't really work at all. And luckily, again, I have amazing editors who said, nope, go back, rewrite this. <laughs> um, and I think being in Bitsy's head really helped. Um, and so, yeah, just kind of uh, draft after draft. Uh, like I said, it's 51,000 words, but I have about 250,000 words of a completely from scratch rewriting the book. So I'm so happy that it's out in the world. It's been really wonderful and satisfying to hear that it's resonating with readers. And I am glad with the with the length because that was that was intentional, you know, wanting it to add to the paciness and um, the, you know, oh my gosh, I need to find out exactly what has happened. So that was the that was the intention. Just one final question, really, which takes us beyond the world of the book. In your head, do your characters live on? And do you have an idea of what Bitsy might do with her life? They do to an extent. So it's interesting because this is a a standalone novel, although I've had a lot of requests for people saying, you know, we'd love to read more about the world of Ember Grove. And I'm, I'm toying with that idea. I like the idea of writing about past revelries or about other characters that you see glimpses of um, kind of in the town. Um, and they would all still be standalones, but you know, be quite satisfying as a reader to be able to kind of see little um, Easter eggs and, and tie them together. Um, my characters absolutely do live on, but I kind of let them, let them go forth. I don't, I know some authors, you know, could tell you exactly what their characters were doing and where they were. But I think this book, especially because it took me so long to write when I finished it, I was like, and that's done. I'm not going to think about Bitsy and Amy a whole lot more. But no, I do have an idea of kind of where where Bitsy is, um, both Bitsy and Amy at the 
at the end of the book and kind of where they are a few years down the line. I really hope they get to the Pacific Ocean. (laughs) (laughs) Me too, me too. Catherine, it's such a delight talking to you and I heartily recommend this book. It's a great read. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for reading. It means a lot. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.